could we be addicted to insulin? Keep listening on to hear my theory, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 141, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you doing today? Thank you for letting me be a small part of your day. My goal for this episode is to give you some new information and something to ponder about. Today, I'm going to chat with you about a nutrition and metabolism topic, a bit of a theory of mine. I sometimes try different nutrition strategies just because I'm naturally curious to see how my physiology will respond to different ways of eating. Lately, I have been switching around my eating by time of day, and I've noticed some changes to my appetite and energy levels. And wonderfully, there have been some studies looking into the details of precisely this. I think you'll find the details of today's topic quite interesting. But before we get into the core takeaways, here is a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. In this foregone fact, I'm going to talk a bit about insulin. So let me give a tiny bit of information on insulin so you can understand just how cool this foregone fact is. Insulin is a hormone in our body. It is released from our pancreas in response to elevated blood sugar levels, when we eat carbohydrates, when we eat sugar, or protein-rich meals even. So it is considered the quote-unquote fed hormone. It's released when we eat. For example, individuals living with type 1 diabetes many times need to take insulin in order to help reduce their blood sugar after eating. So to many of us listening right now, it might be surprising to know that insulin is used to treat anorexia to stimulate eating. Back in 1948, Morgan Stern and Dewing published the importance of insulin in stimulating appetite, cravings, motivation to obtain food, to reduce anxiety, and to help with sleep. They noted back in World War II that insulin was utilized to treat anxiety neurosis. Injection of insulin had a sedative action and enhanced appetite in patients living with anxiety neurosis. From these findings, many scientists speculated if insulin could be used to treat loss of appetite in individuals with other forms of anorexia. In fact, anorexia, or loss of appetite, can happen secondary to many illnesses, such as tuberculosis or chemotherapy treatment. Now, please do keep in mind that this type of anorexia is quite distinct from anorexia nervosa, which is a psychiatric illness. In this report in 1948, the scientists noted that giving insulin to patients with loss of appetite due to tuberculosis did indeed stimulate their appetite. 
it increased their food intake and therefore their overall energy and well-being. Surprising, isn't it? A hormone that is released in response to us eating, if injected as a treatment, can stimulate eating. I think this raises the question, can insulin be used to treat more than just diabetes then? This research from nearly 80 years ago provides some interesting information today on our appetite and our hormone levels. Now let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic on insulin, time of eating, food cravings, and appetite. Based on the foregone fact I just shared, it made me ponder, does eating beget craving? If eating carbohydrates and protein stimulates insulin release, and insulin can increase appetite and cravings, then does eating bring about more craving? Let me put it in another way. After eating a meal, particularly a meal later in the day, that may be rich in carbohydrates and protein, do we ever feel like eating more? That our cravings have increased after eating that meal? This may be even a stronger effect if the meal is just of carbohydrates because our blood glucose and insulin may spike even higher. I even sometimes note that in myself. Well, today I speculate that it is because our insulin has spiked, that that is why our food cravings increase after eating. If insulin can reduce anxiety, if it can help with enhancing sleep and make us feel better as proposed by these older studies that I just shared in the foregone fact, that I think this raises an intriguing theory of mine. Are we addicted to insulin? Instead of being addicted to the sugar and the carbohydrates and eating, are we just addicted to the rise in insulin in our blood? Keep listening on to hear the details and let me know what you think by the end of the episode. Back in 1995, Holt and Miller in the journal Appetite published a study indicating that increased insulin responses after eating actually can make us feel less satisfied and more likely to crave more food. In this small study, they had four men and five women eat different meals that contained 50 grams of carbohydrates. For example, different types of rice were given to the participants. Then the participants' blood insulin, blood glucose, feelings of fullness and satiety, and food eaten in the hours to follow were measured. So the word satiety is going to come up a lot in this episode, so let me quickly define that. Satiety means to feel satisfied, not craving, feeling content, and even feeling full. So what the scientists noted was that the blood insulin levels differed far more than blood glucose between the different types of meals. They also noted in participants with higher blood insulin after eating, the less satisfied the participants felt, and the more they ate later in the day. On an individual basis, total insulin responses were significantly associated with satiety. Specifically, every 10-unit increase in insulin was associated with a decrease in satiety by 1.2 units. So the higher the insulin blood response in the participants, the less satisfaction and more craving for food they had. So what is the neuroscience behind this then? Well, Jaster Boff in the journal Diabetes Care in 2013 reported in a clinical study that individuals living with obesity exhibited increased activation in certain brain regions that regulate reward, motivation to obtain food, 
and pleasure. These brain regions include the striatum and the insula. In this same population, food craving and blood insulin levels correlated positively with neural activity in these same brain reward regions. So the reason why insulin levels leave us feeling unsatisfied and perhaps wanting more food or enhanced craving or enhanced motivation to obtain food could be due to the actions of insulin on these brain reward regions like the striatum and the insula. To further support this idea, Bruin Zeal in the journal Behavioral Brain Research in 2011 investigated the influence of infusing insulin directly into the brain of female rats. The brain regions targeted were brain regions involved in reward, pleasure, and motivation, similar to the other study. The scientists noted that infusion of low concentrations of insulin increased reward thresholds. So what does that mean? Well, this means a desensitization of these brain regions, so to speak. So for example, let's say one chocolate bar would be plenty for us. We would feel satisfied after eating one. But if our reward threshold increases, we need more. One chocolate bar is no longer enough. Now we need two, three, or four chocolate bars. In this rat study, anyway, it appears that insulin may at least in part facilitate that desensitization response, that craving and needing more. Stauffer in the journal Nature Communications in 2015 reported that insulin itself signals reward and pleasure in the striatum of the brain in rodents. They noted that striatal insulin signaling actually enhanced dopamine release to influence food choices. So insulin certainly seems to play a role in our motivation to obtain rewarding things like food. But how about another example? How about not a food-related example? Richardson in 2014 in the journal Drug and Alcohol Dependence conducted a study in rats and noted that in rats with insulin resistance, which is a symptom or a predisposing factor to the development of type 2 diabetes, that the rats with insulin resistance developed a much larger preference and rewarding response to nicotine versus healthy rats. So in other words, having more insulin on board, because typically with insulin resistance, insulin levels are also higher, that seemed to make nicotine more rewarding, more pleasurable, and perhaps more addictive. Speaking of nicotine, there are many parallels that I personally draw between our craving for food and our craving for nicotine. I conduct many similar studies in, in my lab today about this. You may be surprised, but there are a lot of similarities between sugar craving and cravings for drugs like nicotine. Back in 2019 in the journal Nature, we showed in our lab that in rats and mice with a history of taking nicotine, that their insulin levels were elevated. So nicotine may feel good in the short term, preventing a food craving. Perhaps nicotine would replace unhealthy food items. But overall, nicotine can actually perturb insulin signaling and blood glucose levels and may increase the risk of type 2 diabetes and other food cravings. And we go into the detailed neurobiology of this in 2019. We show how nicotine may enhance or increase the risk for type 2 diabetes because of its actions on a brain region called the medial habenula and how it may send a stress signal from the medial habenula to the pancreas to cause altered levels of insulin and blood glucose. So nicotine can raise insulin and that may in part perpetuate cravings. So let's assume that my theory is to be true, that insulin is addicting, or that we enjoy the rise in insulin itself. Well, insulin being released into our system 
They have a calming sedative effect, as I mentioned in the foregone fact, but also a craving effect, as shown by some of the clinical studies and animal studies, and it can further stimulate our appetite to eat more. If that is the case, how can we use this information to our advantage? Say, if we want to reduce our cravings for unhealthy food, say if we're trying to stay on board with a healthy diet, how can we use this information to our advantage? Well, Cotter in the American Journal of Physiology in 1992 conducted an excellent clinical trial. The scientists wanted to understand how the time of day influenced our insulin levels after eating. The reason why I like this study is because the time of day, our circadian rhythm, influences our hormone levels quite significantly. So in this study, they recruited four healthy men and four healthy women aged 22 to 35 years old. They had the participants fast for six hours and then participate in two separate experiments. One experiment was where they ate every six hours. The other was where they ate every 12 hours. The participants' blood was collected through a catheter every 20 minutes, and the participants were kept in the clinic for monitoring during the entire study. I like this clinical study because I think it was well-controlled and had great methods. What the scientists found was that if the exact same meal was eaten in the morning and in the evening, the blood glucose levels were higher in the evening. So let's say, you listening right now and I, let's say we eat a bagel in the morning at 8 a.m. Let's say, again, at 6 p.m., we eat the exact same bagel. If we measure our blood glucose after each meal, chances are our blood glucose levels might be higher in the evening versus the morning. Why does that happen? It seems to be connected to our fluctuating hormone levels tied to our circadian rhythm, including our cortisol. This is why many nutritionists and scientists state that if possible, eating more so in the earlier hours of our day could have metabolic benefits to our health. And that is because our metabolism does seem to be at a higher rate or that our insulin and blood glucose levels respond in a more healthy manner in the morning versus the evening. Let's talk about insulin in this study. So as other studies have found, the peak insulin response after a meal was higher in the morning versus the evening. What I like about this study is they did not just measure peak insulin level like some of the studies do, but they measured the insulin secretory response. The scientists found that the insulin secretory response was much higher in the evening than in the morning. Specifically, the insulin secretory response after eating was 26 to 50% higher in the evening versus the morning. So what this study tells us is eating the same meal in the morning and evening can have very different effects on our metabolism, our blood glucose, and our blood insulin. So why do we battle with cravings more so in the evening, perhaps? It could be because our blood glucose and our blood insulin secretion are much higher in the evening than in the morning. So one potential suggestion if we struggle with evening cravings is to switch up our meal plan and eat more of our calories in the morning hours and eat much lighter in the evening. Part of the reason why low-carbohydrate diets or ketogenic diets may be helpful for people to curb their cravings is because there may be a decline in insulin release. Seeing as carbohydrates cause a rise in insulin, if we significantly reduce carbohydrates, then we reduce insulin secretion. Now, fat does not induce insulin secretion. So the classic ketogenic diet 
that is largely comprised of fat. The classic one that was generated for patients living with epilepsy was 90% of calories coming from fat. As a result, when individuals follow that type of diet, their insulin levels remain very, very low. How else may we lower our insulin? Now, I've spoken about something that might be of use all the way back in episode 8, and I also did an update episode on it back in episode 80. And I speak about the clinical data on apple cider vinegar. There have been several clinical trials published that illustrated that consuming a small amount of apple cider vinegar in capsules or as part of a meal can lower blood glucose and blood insulin levels. For example, Johnston in the journal Diabetes Care in 2004 showed that 20 grams of apple cider vinegar lowered blood insulin after a carbohydrate-rich meal by about 30%. If consuming the apple cider vinegar as liquid from the bottle as opposed to capsules, the most used doses in the clinical trials are 10 to 30 milliliters, which is about 2 teaspoons to 6 teaspoons per day. And I would suggest adding this apple cider vinegar to a vinaigrette on a salad or diluting it in water as consuming the acid by itself could harm our teeth or our throat if taken daily on its own. Now, how can apple cider vinegar lower blood glucose and lower blood insulin? Well, Johnston speculates that the acetic acid in vinegar could suppress disaccharide ACE activity, and that it could also raise glucose 6-phosphate concentrations in skeletal muscle. So, apple cider vinegar every day might just help lower insulin, and perhaps we could theorize, therefore, that it would help curb cravings and appetite. What else might help lower insulin? Back in episode 76, I talk about the health benefits of cinnamon, one of which is lowering blood glucose and insulin levels as well. Most clinical trials looked at doses of 1 to 6 grams of cinnamon per day added to food or beverages. To give you an idea of amount, 1 teaspoon is about 2.6 grams of cinnamon. Back in episode 76, I go, into, I go into the important details, the clinical trial data information, and I also speak about how there are different types of cinnamon. And if we are considering eating cinnamon every day, then Ceylon cinnamon may be a better option, as cassia cinnamon is known to contain some trace amounts of coumarin, which could be harmful. How about another idea? How else could we potentially lower our insulin levels? Well, I've spoken in past episodes about bitter tastings and reducing appetite. An example of something that tastes bitter without the sweetness is black coffee. In fact, coffee and decaffeinated coffee show some benefits to blood glucose and insulin levels. Rias in the British Journal of Nutrition in 2018 found that decaffeinated coffee increased insulin sensitivity. Schubert in the International Journal of Food Sciences and Nutrition in 2017 noted that regular black coffee and black decaf coffee reduced appetite and calorie intake throughout the day as well. So these are potential strategies to potentially help curb insulin rises and therefore food cravings. As I discussed timing of eating, our insulin may spike more so in the evening with meals than in the morning. That might not be the case for everyone. Perhaps we can take note of when we have our cravings when we have an enhanced appetite the most, as this may indicate what time of day we are more likely to experience higher insulin. So if we want to lower insulin, we can attempt to eat most of our calories in the early part of waking up if we find that we get most of our cravings in the evening, or vice versa if you have your cravings in the morning. 
And to support this notion, Ma and the journal Obesity Research and Clinical Practice pooled together 45 different studies and noted a correlation between skipping breakfast and a higher likelihood for living with obesity, and specifically abdominal obesity, or carrying fat around our stomach. Parr and the journal Nutrients in 2020 aimed to see if eating our food earlier in the day instead of spaced throughout the day could make a difference for blood glucose and insulin. So they took the exact same meals and had 11 men eat the foods within an 8-hour window starting at 10 a.m., or the exact same food within a 15-hour window. Now, eating the exact same food, but just within a smaller window in the morning, resulted in some small improvements to their blood glucose and insulin levels. Now, can we imagine in this clinical trial what kind of benefits the participants may have seen if they'd pushed that eating window a bit earlier? And what if they also combine that with the other suggestions I have here, like a lower-carbohydrate diet, apple cider vinegar, cinnamon, coffee, and exercise? I bet we'd see some very good benefits. So what else can we take from this understanding about insulin and cravings? Well, the counter-regulatory hormone to insulin is glucagon. Glucagon has been coined as the fasting hormone. As levels rise after a period of fasting, in order to generate usable energy from within us, if we are not eating. So classically, scientists have considered insulin as the quote-unquote fed hormone, because it's released after eating, primarily eating carbs and protein, and glucagon has been called quote-unquote the fasting hormone, as it's raised when we don't eat. But here's the interesting thing. When scientists gave glucagon to people, it reduced their appetite. This all initially seems so counterintuitive and opposite to what we might initially think. One would think, okay, a fed hormone would likely say, hey, I'm satisfied, stop eating. And a fasting hormone, you would think, would signal, hey, you need to find food, you need to go eat. But it's the opposite. Pennock in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 1961 recruited eight healthy participants and pro provided them muscular injections of a placebo or one milligram of glucagon and followed their eating behavior thereafter. The scientists noted that after a glucagon injection, the participants ate about 34% fewer calories. To determine if long-term glucagon injections made a difference on food intake, the scientists recruited two men for a 25-day study. These men had all of their meals in the clinic and they had a variety of foods and quantities to choose from, and that was monitored. The men blindly received glucagon or placebo muscular injections three times a day over the course of 25 days. The scientists noted that on the glucagon days, the amount of calories that the two men ate was significantly lower, and weight loss occurred on those days. So I think that from what I've shared so far, this raises the question, if we want to lower our food cravings to maintain healthy food choices, can we lower our insulin and raise our glucagon naturally in a healthy way? Because if we can do this, maybe we can stay on track with a healthy diet. If that's the case, how can we do this? Well, back in 1975, it was reported that to increase glucagon, we can do a few things. We can fast, we can exercise, and we can eat a protein-rich meal. Exercise can reduce circulating insulin as well. So two birds with one, stem, with one stone. For example, Gintelberg in the journal Applied Physiology in 1977 
recruited a group of individuals to do a cycling program four times a week for 10 weeks. They would cycle for 60 minutes at 60% maximum effort. Now their insulin levels decreased by more than half. This decrease in insulin with exercise remained steady even after 10 weeks of working out and improving their exercise performance. So if we have cravings at a particular time of day, exercising even at 60% effort could lower our insulin and perhaps help with food cravings. Interestingly, glucagon levels nearly doubled after 60 minutes of cycling. So again, a double whammy effect. But after the 10 weeks of cycling, four times a week, the increase in glucagon seemed to be less significant. Glucagon then only rose by 16%. So the body seems to adapt to exercise over time when it comes to glucagon, but not insulin, which is half good. It is possible that insulin levels will still drop, but glucagon won't rise as much as we exercise more. Also in episode 130, I talk about a recent clinical study showing that high-intensity interval training raises the metabolite LAC-phi in the blood, which may suppress appetite as well. So you can go back and give episode 130 a listen if you haven't yet. What else might help our insulin and glucagon levels? Well, if a high-protein meal raises glucagon, is there a specific type of protein? Well, Rocha in the journal Clinical Investigation 1972 studied to see specifically which amino acids cause glucagon to rise the most. So they infused 20 different amino acids separately into the circulation of dogs and measured their corresponding glucagon levels. The scientists noted the amino acid asparagine increased glucagon the most, next followed by glycine and then by phenylalanine. These amino acids are abundant in many protein-rich foods and speaks to the fact that amino acids can indeed raise glucagon. Protein can also increase insulin production, so this is something important to consider. That we want to raise glucagon but maybe lower insulin. Unfortunately, protein seems to do both. In this same study, insulin rose, but not to the same degree as glucagon when the amino acids were provided. So there you have it, my people scientist army, some science on insulin and food cravings. What do you think of my theory? Are we addicted to insulin? If insulin has a sedative calming effect, if it was used to treat anxiety and neuroses back in the day, and if it motivates us to consume more food, is it that that we are addicted to and not necessarily the food itself? Interesting theory, isn't it? If that is the case, then whatever raises or reduces our insulin is now giving us a therapeutic target to help get our healthy eating on track. A blood insulin rising after a meal may actually increase our food cravings and appetite even more. Some of the clinical trials show that when insulin rose more after eating, the participants felt less satisfied and ate more in the long run. Do we ever find ourselves craving unhealthy foods after dinner, for example. Well, scientists have noted that insulin acts on brain reward pathways to increase motivation to obtain pleasurable things, like unhealthy foods and nicotine even. So if that's the case, and what are some ways that we might be able to reduce this insulin secretory response and perhaps therefore reduce our food cravings? Well, we can eat more of our calories earlier in the day, as we may release more insulin after eating in the evening less insulin when we eat in the morning. We can also reduce our carbohydrate intake, 
we can add apple cider vinegar, cinnamon, coffee, exercise, and protein-rich meals to our healthy routine. As a personal example, I, as of late, have been eating a higher-protein, larger breakfast, and I noted quite a big difference in a reduction of my appetite and a reduction in in cravings throughout the day and in the evening versus when I did a much smaller, higher-carbohydrate breakfast. I'm not saying that this is appropriate for everyone. I'm just a sample size of one. And as always, I do suggest for you to follow the advice of your physician and your dietitian. But the clinical data is compelling and fascinating, isn't it? I hope that this episode was thought-provoking for you, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Leave me a comment or ask me a question and let me know what you thought of it. Let me know if you agree or if you disagree with my theory. I hope regardless that you enjoyed it, and if you did, then please share it with a friend. Leave me a comment on social media or feel free to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the show. The information on how to do that is in the description box to this episode. I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.